Hi, my name is Ali Reza Mujibian, and welcome to Noteworthy. My guest for this episode is the one and only Rosalind Jones. By every measure, Rosalind is an incredible artist, and to read out her resume would take away from hearing of her story and wisdom firsthand. Not only has she garnered acclaim for her voice and for her stage work, but her love for her art and passion for teaching have set her on a lifelong pursuit of mentoring young artists, molding the minds and voices of new generations of musicians, helping them find their path and their unique voice in the 21st century. I have been lucky enough to have shared the stage with her and to have learned from her, and now I'm even luckier to get to speak with her for this podcast. Welcome, Roz. Thank you so much for having me. What a lovely introduction. Oh, uh, you're most welcome. It is true to every point. It makes me sound so fancy. Well, you are. <laughs> I wanted to start our conversation today with a look back on the last year. Um, seeing as it's almost exactly a year to when lockdowns went into effect pretty much all over the world, I think it's appropriate to take a moment. Um, you are a performing artist and a full-time teacher. Can I ask how you've been reflecting on everything that's happened? Sure. Yeah, it's been quite a year. As we approach the one-year mark, it's interesting to see and listen and hear all of these different opinions from so many people. There's a trend. One year ago, I was doing this. One year ago was my last performance. You know, we're all very eager to be back on stage, back performing for audiences. Um, but it's also given us a little time to pause and reflect and remember what's most important to us. At least that's the case for me. I think it's been most difficult for young people. I, I see that it's been difficult on the students that I interact with. But again, it gives us a little bit of time to pause. And, you know, my husband and I, we have been so busy. We've been, you know, passing like ships in the dark. <laughs> too many jobs, too many commitments. He's a stagehand and he doesn't have, you know, there's no performances going on right now. So he's been home a lot. And we've had dinner at our dining room table, which we haven't even used since we got married almost every night now. That's been a, been a good change. And something, something small like that brings things into perspective. Yes, we're having dinner together each night. It means we're able to connect and talk about our days and strengthen our relationship and feel more connected to each other. I've spent more time on FaceTime with my family in the past year than I have uh, in years previous, mostly because I'm worried about them. Uh, but it's also been just great to hang out together and take some time to, you know, enrich those relationships. My husband at the very beginning of the pandemic said something that sticks with me every day. He says, I think this is like the most significant event of our lives. And I was like, nah, it's crazy. But I think he's right. I think it is the most significant event. I hope that it's the most significant event of my life. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle much more. So one of the things that I've loved about my conversations with artists so far is really getting to know them uh, more through their unique stories um, than read, as I said, the resumes. As you know, even though it's necessary at times where we have to write 200 to 250 word biographies in a brochure or a website, it doesn't help relay who the artist is to the audience. How did Rosalind Jones find her path to music and classical voice? 
Did you have family influence? Did you sing in a choir, a combination of the two? How did things get started? I couldn't agree more. I I hate writing those 200, 250 word resume bio things. And they seem to get shorter and shorter. I had someone ask recently, can you send us your bio? And I just take it from my website and I just copy paste and sent it. And they were like, great, can you cut it down to 150 words? And I replied, no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you can cut it down. I'm not doing that work for you. And that being said, that resume list of like, oh, she's sung here. She's sung in blah, blah, blah. And list like name, drop, name, drop, name, drop, name, drop. I'm so over it. And you're, you're so right. It's not indicative of the work and the person behind that. But it's a necessity, I suppose. Um, how did I find my path to music? Uh, I've been very, I am a privilege, a person of privilege. I grew up with two parents who believe strongly in education and providing as many opportunities for me as they could. And they sacrificed a lot for their children to be able to experience those things. I, there wasn't a thing that my parents weren't like, okay, we'll, we'll try it. I was in every sport. I played every instrument. I was in every choir. Like, could I just do one choir? No, I had to do all of the choirs. I see a sneaky suspicion to modern day Roz. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> turns out it's been this way all along. And um, it's, it's because of my mom. My mom put me in piano lessons at age four, took me to voice lessons an hour and a half away from our house. These opportunities that my parents provided for me and the public school system that I was in, I was lucky. I was blessed. I was privileged. I grew up in like rural Canada on a farm and it was unexpected that I, you know, wanted to become an opera singer. Although I'm sure people in my family would say, oh no, you always had the dramatic tendency (laughs) of an opera singer. Um, I've just always known I wanted to be in music. I didn't really know what it was going to look like. I still don't really know what it looks like. So I knew that going to university for music and just diving in and immersing myself in all the foundational skill building courses that are at a university like UBC would give me the tools I needed to see where the path led from there. The path has kind of revealed itself along the way. And luckily, I have had the people around me and the baseline common sense to follow where that path was leading. It's hard for me to to watch a lot of these students right now who are struggling in so many different ways. And then I just, it, I'm like, oh my God, I was so blessed and so lucky to have that in my life. You are also, as you mentioned, an alumni of UBC. Uh, are there any, um, You were you there for, for seven years, for six years or seven years? Six. Yeah. Six years. In your six years, do you have any do you have any highlights, moments? It oh. doesn't have to be a performance. It can be a moment of absolute hilarity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or pure sadness. Um, <laughs> no. Not too many of those, luckily for me, but um I have a couple. I have two that I that come to my mind very quickly. The first was my very first role that I did at UBC, which was the Dew Fairy in Hansel and Gretel. It must have been my third year, so I was, what, 20? So it came time to stage the Dew Fairy aria. And 
the other cast went first. So the other do fairy, I don't even remember who it was. I have no idea. But she went up there and bombed. It was terrible. Nancy screamed at her. <laughs> and I just felt warm pee running down my leg. <laughs> just kidding. Um, but I got, I did get very nervous. I was like, oh my God, I don't want to get yelled at like that. Like, poor girl. Now, to be fair, she didn't know her music and she wasn't really listening. And she didn't, what she didn't do, she didn't just go for it. I watched it. She sort of half did it. And I don't blame her. It's scary. So then it was my turn. And so, you know, with a fresh diaper, I waddled up on stage. <laughs> and <laughs> um, I had a little chat with myself as, as I walked to the, you know, upstage corner of the Chan Center. And I remember telling myself, just going to do it. I'm going to do it like 175 billion percent. And so she's like, all right, next cast, you try. So, you know, if she had told the other Dew Fairy to like twirl, I twirled like a hundred times. If she said, you know, sprinkle a little bit of uh, Dew Fairy dust, I would dump the entire can. And I actually did dump the entire can of sparkles on a performance. <laughs> of course you did. Directly on top of Hansel's head. You know, I'm singing and yeah, 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 yeah. You know, dumping the sprinkles, and I, this whole like watering can of sprinkles goes thud right on Hansel's face, who of course has to sing in like mere seconds. And I hear my dad in the audience go. Ah. <laughs> anyway, that moment of me like telling myself to like just do it that stands out as a turning point for me because I was, I just did it and I did it like 400%. And no, I didn't do it perfectly. I didn't do it super well, but at least I did it. And if you ask Nancy, she'll remember that as well. She says like, you know, she had to giggle to herself watching me twirl, 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 twirl. (laughs) (laughs) The other moment that I loved, uh, I think, I don't remember. I think it was my fourth year, maybe first year of my master's. Um, the Dalai Lama came to UBC. And of course, Nancy had figured out a way to involve the opera. Uh, Along with the Dalai Lama, Bishop Desmond Tutu came, who at the time, I had no idea who that was. How terrible is that? But I learned very quickly. So it was Bishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. And I was meant to sing Rusalka's aria. And I was like so nervous, so terrified. I'm telling you, I was for all of this like fancy, fancy, fancy people. Um, and I was standing backstage with a colleague who was also singing on the same concert. And we were kind of tucked away trying to just remain invisible. <laughs> and I didn't want to cause a scene. I didn't want to like draw attention to myself. And I was so nervous because the Dalai Lama and De- Bishop Desmond Tutu were going to walk right by. And walk by they did. And they were standing waiting to go on stage too. And I just, I was just watching them like, oh my God, like the years of history and experience and sheer unbelievable lives they led. And I was standing there all like nervous, shaking because I had, you know, to go on sing. And I was like, oh, this is, are they even going to like it? It's awful. Like I'm singing this weird peace is terrible I don't, I don't think i should do this and then i saw bishop desmond tutu poke the dalai lama in the back of the head <laughs> and the dalai lama turns around like who did that and bishop desmond tutu was like wasn't me <laughs> and then he did it again and he started like tickling him like poking him like and they then they were just like two 
kids backstage and I was like, my life is made. Everything is going to be fine. I had the awesome opportunity to be a camp counselor for the UBC Summer Opera Workshop, Vocal Workshop for a couple summers and got to see the incredible work that yourself and all the instructors and teachers and pianists put into creating a magical two weeks where kids would come in and they would have their first concert and you would be like wherever you would see where everyone is. But then by the end of the two weeks, every single kid left with this energy, confidence, performance ability that was inspiring, uh, uh, even as a camp counselor. So how, how does that come to perspective for you as you're also building a performance career? As, as you know, I'm the eldest of three, and both of my parents were teachers. So I've always naturally been bossy and in charge. <laughs> and um, I didn't think that I would start teaching as early as I ended up starting to teach. After the Adler Fellowship was over, I was kind of back and forth between Europe and Canada and the States and kind of living in a suitcase, not really sure where I was going to land, if I was going to land. The crash of 2008 uh, economically impacted a lot of artists and a lot of opera companies in particular. And any momentum, at least in my career, felt like, oof, we just hit a real big roadblock. I also, at the time, was with a management company that I found to be abusive and uh, hurtful in a lot of different ways. They had a big impact on my confidence in a negative way, which had never really been a thing with me. And that threw me for a loop, too. And it made me step back for a moment and reassess and readjust and, you know, on some days, I still hear those voices of um, those people who treated me pretty terribly. And if I look closely, it was and continues to be a big issue in the opera world with people in power using words against artists. In my experience, I saw that happen mostly with women. It doesn't help the you know most of the people in charge of these decisions being made are male, and I found that troubling to say the least. They would look at certain things about someone's performance or voice or how they looked or how they didn't look, and not judge any of the artistry behind it. And I felt like a lot of voices were being kind of pushed out of the conversation, and. I think there's room for more. <laughs> and that was a turning point for me in terms of, okay, how can I change this? How can I impact the lives of others and maybe myself too, to find ways to make space for more kinds of voices, more um, people in charge of these organizations and companies and educational institutions how do I get myself in that position so that nobody treats me the way that I was treated by some people in the business? And I started, I started at the bottom with teaching, like not the, not the bottom, but I started like, okay, I will literally teach anybody. I teach anyone who loves to sing. I've taught people who can't read music, who cannot carry a tune in a bucket if I handed it to them. 
I started teaching in my in-laws house because I didn't, I couldn't afford to have my own place. And my, my husband and I were living in the basement of his parents' house and it slowly built from there. So when Nancy and the former uh, head of the UBC summer vocal workshop asked me to come and and work in the summer as just like a, a voice teacher, like a guest voice teacher. By the way, that manager, who was a total jerk, told me I shouldn't do it. And if I did do it, I shouldn't tell anybody about it because teaching was for quitters. And that just fueled me more. That just made me want to prove them wrong. You did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in addition to your work at the conservatory, you're also the co-founder of the Bay Area Vocal Program, and you also hold your own private studio. What have you learned as an artist from your students? Oh, yeah, all the time. They teach me all the time. Being a teacher has made me a better singer. As soon as you have to teach what it is you have found to come so easily to you, as soon as you have to describe it to someone else, then you can do it better yourself. So every day, my students teach me something new about my own singing. It's particularly poignant at this moment to be asked that question because a lot of the students who I began working with when I began my teaching career at the Ruth Asawa School of the Arts here in San Francisco, I, I mean, I started teaching them when they were 14. I'm now getting ready to either hopefully accept them into their master's work at San Francisco Conservatory or watch them finish their master's degree and go on to start building their own lives in, in music. It's a kind of parenting, honestly. It gives me a chance to be anti-Roz and to help them along in my own way. And that's very satisfying. I, ha I hope that I have a positive impact in their lives. So we, we both know Everyone listening will know that live performance um, will come back. Tens um, and tens of people listening. My mom, <laughs> your mom. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, moving into 2021, how do you see the arts embracing, and I use that word very gently, <laughs> the post-pandemic world? It's a big question that a, a lot of people in charge right now are having. It's ongoing. I am going to be the first to say that I don't have all the answers for that question. I have some thoughts about it. I have some hopes and wishes about it. I don't have all the answers. There are some systemic things that need to change. And people who say things like, I just want to go back to normal. I want to go back to this. That's my least favorite phrase I've decided recently. <laughs> I don't like that term, going back to something. Normal was pretty bad for a lot of people. And at times, it was, it was pretty bad for me. There are a lot of things in the classical musical world that I don't like. I don't like the tiny, narrow pathway that leads from undergrad, master's, young artist program, win a couple competitions, get, have a career at the Met. End of list. I don't like that. It's too small a scope. What other degree or profession has those odds? What other degree has some of the most highly skilled professionals who can't find a job after? 
I would like to change that or help change that. I can't do it by myself and I don't have all the answers. But I think there should be more than one path to quote unquote success. I would like to change the conversation and make it possible for my students to build a life in music in whatever way that means, you know, whatever that means to them. I would like to redefine what success means for classical musicians. It cannot just be one thing anymore. We can't. I, I have a lot of friends who did that tiny, tiny little path, who have giant net careers. And I think that time is over. I think it's not going to be possible to just do that one thing anymore. I think we're all going to have to expand our definition of uh, what it means to be an opera singer. We're going to be artists. We have to... Uh, we have to sing different kinds of music. We have to sing them in different venues. Yes, we can still sing big opera in big houses, but we can also sing big opera in smaller houses. We can sing new opera in smaller, more creative, imaginative uh, venues. We can include more voices in the ugh, worst word in opera, canon of operas. I don't know how many more magic flutes I can watch, but <laughs> like to reimagine the story and the 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 way that music is presented to the audience has to be redefined. We have to I'm more instead of this tiny, tiny little like pipeline to the Met, I'm much more interested in a bigger pipeline in educating young people in elementary school levels, educating the middle school levels, high school, getting them involved in opera, getting them and I'm not talking like just getting them all to become singers. There are a hundred different ways to be involved in opera. You can be in the opera orchestra. You can learn how to sew wigs. That is an art form that should be, in my opinion, valued and celebrated. Everyone who has been in an opera knows that it's not just like the star soprano standing on stage. It's at the very least that. <laughs> that person had a dresser and had a makeup artist, had someone helping them along the way, has a pianist and a coach helping them learn the music. All of these different roles in music making are important, and I hope to find ways to make more voices heard in that process. I'm most interested at the moment in getting more women in positions of power in the classical music world. I don't really know how to do that, but I'm trying in my own Roz Force way. <laughs> I think you 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 know how to do that and you've been doing that um you've been doing that all along to just my own personal experience being around you and having worked with you I think just through the way you lead and the empowerment that you give to uh young women by giving that empowerment you are putting them in a better position than than previous generations where no, no disrespect to previous generations of men or women, but if you grow up in a system in society where you are told from birth that you have one place in life, you end up perpetuating that to your daughters and their daughters and their daughters. But enough women broke that cycle 
and you're one of them <laughs> that that uh, uh no but you know what i mean like there's there's plenty there's many women out there who are doing the same thing but i i think that that's that's what you're offering is that you are you're breaking that cycle and allowing uh for a space of being able to imagine and envision yourself in a greater place than society has ever been allowing you to i think so too you know in in particular i have seen uh, a lot of women of color doing that all along they have been doing that far longer than i have people like karen slack a friend of mine who um was most recently a colleague at the Banff center she's been having those conversations for as long as i have known her and she's putting you know putting her own voice at the forefront of this conversation i i want more of that (laughs) i think i'm the last person on earth to read this book but i just finished reading michelle obama's becoming book and just the way she talks about interacting with young people and giving them the chance to be heard and uh, making space for people who have maybe been seen as other in the past. I, I'm a white lady, but I want to make room for, for those people in whatever way I can. That's what I'm going to do. As a mentor to young artists, do you have any sage advice for how they can continue pushing forward in this time, even though it's confusing and weird and so many things are uncertain? Is there something that you you could tell them? People ask me that a lot. And I wish I had some like concise way to encourage or inspire people uh, or students. I don't. I think we're all kind of figuring it out as we go along. I hope to inspire students and and young people, not just through what I say, but through my actions. My mom always taught me to be a good big sister and to lead by example. And I always hated hearing her say that because it usually meant I was misbehaving. But she was so right, turns out, about everything. And to lead by an example of kindness, integrity, hopefulness. Those are my goals. I don't always achieve them every single day because I am human, but I certainly strive for those tenets of what I think make a good human. I think for young singers, I encourage them to be creative. I hope they can find ways in their own work to be creative about how they want to express themselves. I also want to tell them to do the work that I'm not going to do it for them. (laughs) That like, yes, it's a new, hopefully a new time and everyone's going to have a higher chance of quote unquote success defined by themselves, but also they have to do the work. If I were to boil it down, I would say, Keep your blinders on, do your work, show up for yourself and show up for others. Be a good colleague, be a good friend and be kind to yourself. I once asked Judith Forrest for her advice on how to succeed in the classical music world. And she told me, wear sensible shoes. (laughs) And I remember feeling like, yeah, but what about my high notes? But that advice has stuck with me for, 
uh, like 20 years now, because the perspective that brings to my life, yes, wear sensible shoes, arm yourself with the, the tools you need to do your job well, walk the many, many miles that it takes to be a success, I hate this word, successful artist, a person of integrity and someone that you feel good about at night, right? You want to go to bed and not feel like a terrible person. You want to feel like you've done something to change someone else's world. So thanks, Judy Forrest. <laughs> to talk about some exciting things, hopefully exciting things, what do you have in store for 2021? Are you? Do you have any performances in the works yourself? Well, it's currently kind of a busy time in my professional life. My studio at the conservatory just presented a recital celebrating the works of Pauline Viardot. We did some um, group numbers and trios and duet with the magic of technology. Uh, we also did some live performances at SFCM because of they have a system there called Dante, and it allows us to perform live while the pianist is in another room live, and there's no lag time. It's incredible. So that was very exciting and thrilling for the students. Uh, the singers who got to perform live were just so hungry for live performance. And hearing them, like I had to stand outside, like outside of the door, and I had my ear pressed to the door just to hear live singing instead of on a computer was... <sighs> I just was standing there with my ear pressed to the door with tears streaming down my face because it was like, oh my God, it's the human voice. <laughs> not filtered through Zoom. I'm not emotionally <laughs> ready. Um, uh, last weekend, San Francisco Opera streamed La Rondine, which I was in with um, Angela Gergia, which was a highlight of, I can't believe I'm saying this, 14 years ago. I'm going to uh, appear with the San Francisco Girls Chorus at the end of March in their gala performance where we're uh, performing the Dvorak Moravian duets. I'm also about to record um, something with San Francisco Opera. We're doing something called the Atrium Session. I'm recording music all written by female composers. I'm not sure how it's going to be shared with the public, but I will definitely just be posting about it way too much. I'll be annoying the crap out of people. There's There are some other projects coming up that, that I just haven't signed or agreed to completely yet, and I'm a bit superstitious. So I'm hopeful for this year. I'm, uh, I'm returning, hopefully, to the Chautauqua Institute this summer to teach. Oh, is that going to be in person? Cross fingers. I hope so. That's the latest I've heard. I haven't heard otherwise yet. It, it's starting up again, and 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 uh, at least here in Canada, I'm sure you've you've heard about it. Um, there, there's so all the all the indie opera companies, um, organizations like Opera in Reach are completely disrupting the system. I love Opera um, in Reach, and it's so yes, I love, exactly. I just worked with a, a few of them through the Banff Center, and my goodness, this is why I'm glad I don't have all of the answers for those big questions you asked, because those students, uh, I, I think they might have the answers. I think, like, I think they know how to change it, and I'm like, okay, cool. How can I help? I can't do what you're doing because you're way more amazing than I ever could be, but. Can I help? <laughs> so, Can I help? yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I don't know. Yeah, that's an incredible organization. 
Yeah, it's honestly, it's been the best part about uh, doing this podcast and, and talking to different artists, including the friends at uh, Opera and Reach is, is seeing how, as you, as you said earlier, the resilience of artists. No one is going down without a fight. This is not a uh, zero-sum game where an entire art form or, or group or arts in general are going to just... It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And it's going to come back and it's going to be stronger and we're going to be in the roaring 20s. That's what it's going to be. <laughs> That's right. And And never have there been more people just so eager for live performance. I'm I'm convinced of it. I... I can't wait to hear the orchestra again in person. I will definitely be be sobbing. I I was just gonna say I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna cry. Yeah, that's gonna yeah. You are absolutely gonna cry. Who are you kidding? You cry at like puppies. This is true. <laughs> I, this is, I mean, yeah. Baby. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're definitely gonna cry. I am gonna cry too. <laughs> My cold black heart. <laughs> Roz, thank you so much for today. This feels like a nice chat with a, with a friend. <laughs> Needless to say that Rosalind Jones is one of my favorite humans. She is real, tells it like it is, and she is a one-of-a-kind role model who has had an immeasurable impact on young artists from all over Canada and the United States. Thank you, Roz, for creating space for young artists to grow and spread their wings. Thanks to all performing educators and music mentors of all capacities who are out there doing the same thing, spreading the good news that is music to the next generation. You can reach us on Instagram at Noteworthy Podcast and through our website, NoteworthyPodcast.com. As always, please make sure to support your local arts and cultural institutions in any way you can. And remember, your support doesn't always have to be financial. It can be something as simple as reposting about digital events in your area. And finally, thank you to Duncan Watts Grant for editing and producing this show with me. Thank you for listening. <laughs>